0: Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Good morning everyone. Great to see you in church this morning. Isn't it good to be healthy and well and in church? Uh, so praise God for that. Um, praying for those people who are at home sick. Uh, Hopefully you can recover soon. Uh, I just want to give a plug before we start, before I pray. Tomorrow night, joyful discipleship. If you're a parent, little one, uh, medium-sized one, teenager, um, please come along. It'd be great to have you along. Uh, What's God given us as a gift to help us disciple our kids? It's the Word of God. We're going to open up the Word of God. Fee's got some great practical stuff prepared for us and we've got each other. So come along, uh, be encouraged as we make disciples of our kids at church. Uh, and at home. I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, please uh, help us now to concentrate, to think, to listen to your Word. Uh, Lord, thank you for the great and awesome and merciful and compassionate God that you are, the righteous judge that brings glory to your name, uh, the one that has fulfilled every promise uh, in Christ, uh, the one that wants good for your people. Uh, in Christ. Father, help us to see these things now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I want to uh, change gears a little bit, uh, take you back to the events of 9-11, just over 20 years ago, uh, September 11, 2021, uh, two planes hijacked uh, by terrorists hit the twin towers of the World Trade Center in New York, third plane hits the Pentagon Shocking events, yeah, tragic events. Uh, what was so shocking about them? There's, there's a number of things, I think, isn't there? Uh, one is, uh, what, a, what a massive breach of security in our Western world. We thought we were safe. Uh, here's the nation of all nations, America, uh, breached in their security. But I reckon more shocking than that, it was an act done with prayer. It was an act done in the name of God. So it was actually, I reckon, for the West, a huge wake-up call raised some serious questions about religion. Are we seriously saying that every religion is the same? Is that, what, is that where Islam takes you? Is that true Islam? Is it just enough to be sincere? Surely not. Men, sincere, praying in the name of God, committed such evil. But you know, Christians have committed the same evil. Have a look at this quote. Kill them all, God will know his own. Now, it sounds like uh, the language of an Islamic jihad. You know, they're actually words spoken by a a representative of the Pope. Uh, It's 800 years ago, in the midst of the Crusades, back in the 13th century, a religious army by the authority of the Pope himself proceeded to systematically slaughter 20,000 people of the French town of Beziers, And what religion were the people of that town? They were Christian people. Uh, They were a sect of Christianity that came under the disapproval of the Roman Catholic Church. But as the soldiers proceeded to annihilate that city, they did it with the approval, so they thought, of God. And there, there was a bloody holy war where every casualty was justified. Now, I'm sure you've, hopefully you've thought about these things before, but what do you make of that? Hopefully you recoil in horror like I do. How can such a thing be done in the name of Christianity? Now it's not surprising, holy wars are one of the things of many things that Aussies really dislike about Christianity, uh, or or so so they're saying. So, uh, McCrindle did a survey in 2017, and they surveyed people who were open to Christianity. I'm I'm willing to explore, but here are the things that most turn me off. Here are the top five. Uh, Not surprisingly, uh, church abuse, 53%. Hypocrisy, 47%. Judging others, 29%. Religious wars, 29%. Suffering, 28%. So fourth in the hit list is religious wars. And you think about it, how can you disagree with that? Uh, How can it be that God's people, in God's name, put to death other people? Well, unless you fell asleep in the Bible reading, you can't have missed... Isn't that what's happening in Deuteronomy chapter 7? We've come to that part in the book of Deuteronomy. We've, we've actually been there before. But here is God calling his people to holy war. Uh, we're 1,500 years, to the been context, 1,500 years before Jesus. Uh, God has rescued his people out of Egypt. Uh, there they are, camped on the edge of the promised land, ready to enter. Uh, ready to enter the land that God promised 500 years earlier but there are people living in that land that they are to possess. Look at it with me in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Have it in front of you, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, Have a look at it with me in verse 1 of chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, down to verse 2, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, And you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. You must destroy them totally. Down to verse 5. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles. Burn their idols in the fire. It's not hard to get the message, is it? Total destruction, total annihilation of the people, their religion, their culture. Why does God command this? And what are what are we to draw from this passage as God's people in Christ? Uh, there's a lot we can say about holy war. I want to actually refer you back if you want to press into this more. Uh, Jeff spoke about this a few weeks ago, so track it down. I think it was when we were in Deuteronomy chapter two. And if you remember, there was five big things Jeff spoke to us about. I want you to um, really think into this. Uh, God is sovereign. God uses things he hates for justice, God is just, God is patient and God is merciful. We'll we'll see some of these, thank you, thank you so much. Um, We'll see some of these themes today but I want to press into this chapter, chapter 7. What is this chapter saying to us about living for Christ? Three big points, three reasons from chapter 7 why God calls them to holy war And then I want to, as we go through each one, I want to work out with you, what does this mean for us in light of Jesus' death and resurrection? Okay, so that's where we're heading. Um, So let's have a look at the first one. First one I want to say, Israel are called to holy war because they're bringing God's justice. Uh, Why does God call them to destroy the Canaanites, the Amorites, the other nations in the land? Answer, God is bringing justice. God is judging those nations. Now, it's really important. It's not because Israel are superior. It's nothing to do with them being a superior race. It's not because God is racist. It's not because God hates foreigners. In fact, chapter 10, verse 18, God loves the foreigner. No, it's because the time has come for righteous judgment to fall on these nations. Flick over to chapter 9, verse 5. God reminds Israel, it is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. And I want you to notice, um, flick back with me to chapter 7, I want you to notice the language of chapter 7. Notice, Notice this, it's God's war... And it's their war. It's God's war and it's their war. It's, it's God who's enacting this judgment. It's his war. It's his judgment. And at the same time, it's their war. They're called to action. They're called to fight. They're called to defeat. They're called to step up and destroy. Look at the language with me, verse 2. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. We'll flick down to verse 23, the end of the chapter. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will give their kings into your hand and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand against you. You will destroy them. Look over at chapter 9 again, verse 3. But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them, he will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. See so the idea? God is at work, and you are going to be at work. Uh, it's why they're understandably afraid. Look at verse 17 you would be afraid too, right? God is calling you to do a huge thing. Verse 17, you may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? I'll let you read the answer, but in verse 18, Moses is going to encourage them, your God can do this. He is mighty, he is powerful. He has done it before, he's committed to doing it, trust him. Israel brings God's judgment on the, on the nations in the land. Now, that says a lot about God, doesn't it? It says a lot about judgment. Uh, God is the creator of, of every nation. He is the one who calls all people to himself, to, uh, to account. One day, every single one of us will come before God and, and bring an account for the way that we've lived on that great day of judgment. And on that day, God will give people what they deserve, And he will execute his judgment in a way that is totally just and totally right. And here's the thing, all evil will be totally destroyed. Once and for all, every evil thought, every evil action, every evil person will be annihilated. But for those nations living in the promised land, the Canaanites, the Amorites, actually God's judgments come Fast forward, hasn't it? There it is. And on this day, as we proceed into this promised land, God's patience has run out. And it has been a long journey of patience for God. For over 500 years, God's given them opportunity to repent. Uh, way back 500 years earlier, when God promised the land to Abraham, what did he say? He said, Not yet. You will not yet enter, because that will mean the destruction of these people. I'm holding off, I'm holding off, I'm holding off. Not yet. Genesis fifteen sixteen, The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. See, for 500 years, God put up with the terrible atrocities of the Amorites, the terrible sin of the nations of that land. But what is God like? He's not like us. What is God like? He's slow to anger, he's slow to judge and what does he do? He keeps holding back, holding back, holding back and when his judgment finally comes, how does Isaiah describe God's judgment? Look at Isaiah 28, God's this is God's strange work, this is his alien task. You might have picked this up earlier in Deuteronomy. What's God like? He's the God who... Blesses, shows grace and mercy to a thousand generations and judges to the second and third generation. God loves to show mercy. God loves to show kindness and compassion. He's God who waits and waits and patiently waits upon sinners. And He's the God who judges. But when He brings justice, He does it reluctantly. He actually faces His own dilemma. You'll see this in other parts of the Bible. It's God saying evil must be dealt with, I cannot bear the injustice. If you think you can't bear injustice, think about a holy God who will not let that continue. He will not let sin go unpunished. Would you want a God that let that go? And yet, the God who, who wants people to return to him. He wants to give people every opportunity to come and experience his mercy and kindness and compassion. Well, for the nations living in the land, God's patience has run out. You know, you you, you see God's mercy even in his judgment. You see it all through the scriptures. You see it here. I don't know whether you notice it in this chapter. It is annihilation. It is total destruction. But it's actually more nuanced than that. Verse 22, I don't know whether you notice this, God will drive them out little by little and you'll need to press into the details of this, but there's that idea that there will be time for escape as the the armies march in. Some will be displaced and not killed. Only those who stubbornly refuse, God will put to death. God is merciful even in his judgment. Even at the last moment, he's leaving every possible opportunity. And if you know the story, what's the story? As they come in to the promised land they come into the first city and the first city is Jericho and do you remember the story of the Canaanite prostitute named Rahab she actually turns to the living God and what happens she's received into the people of God God has mercy on her and she's actually embraced by the people of God uh, she even becomes part of the royal line of David uh, and the royal line that leads to Jesus See, God doesn't delight in judgment. God delights in showing mercy. Now, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, God says, "I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live." Well, what does this part mean for us? Uh, well, the first thing to say is this event—you've got to get your head around this—is is unique. Hopefully that's obvious to you. Uh, This is a unique event in history. Uh, Never again does God call upon his people to destroy a nation in his name. And so what does that mean? It means there is no justification for Christians taking up arms to somehow think they're advancing God's kingdom. That is completely out of character with God's plans and purposes. Um, It's what people misunderstood with Jesus, isn't it? Uh, When Jesus stood on trial, even his servants even his disciples were tempted weren't they to pull out the sword we've got to fight and Jesus says no 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 Uh, my kingdom is not of this world Jesus says if it were my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders but now my kingdom is from another place Uh, I think it was three or four weeks ago I was uh, I was having car troubles having a lot of trouble with this New car I bought. Um, bought a second ha- sen- second-hand car. Um, it's been to three mechanics <laughs> over the last few months. Um, two trips to Sydney ended with me being towed home on a tow truck. I've got to know the operators on NRMA and all that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, I was on Picton Road, um, being picked up by the tow truck, Jump in the tow truck, um, start chatting to the guy, um, what do you do for work? It's very easy for me to talk about Jesus because I'm a minister. Uh, and I said, oh, what have you had to do much to do with church? I'm Muslim. And he was a very, very serious Muslim. Uh, and he was very passionate and very, I thought very aggressive. And there I am uh, on <laughs> in the tow truck on Picton Road late at night thinking, I'm going to take this conversation carefully. I'm not going to press too hard. <laughs> Um, And I said to him, I'm just trying to work out what to say, he's preaching at me the whole time. Yeah, I could hardly get a word in. And I said to him, what do you think is the difference between Jesus and Muhammad? And I I wanted to give him the answer. Uh, Muhammad was the militant leader who did lead by the sword, the slaughtering of people, the advancement of Islam was with much bloodshed. And Jesus' kingdom is of a different world. Um, I survived the journey. (laughs) We had the conversation. He did point out to me that that there is a great judgment to come that Jesus will enact. That's what he believed as well. But the character of the war is very different, isn't it? And you've got to say at this point, the Crusades are, are critically, critically wrong, aren't they? They're dramatically wrong. They're tragically mistaken, they're either deliberately distorting the word of God to their own evil end, to do something like that, um, or they've misread the scriptures majorly and God will hold them to account. But here's here's the the other thing to say of this part of the Bible. I want to say, as Christians, we are involved in a holy war. It's just a very different holy war. Uh, Our means of engagement is not taking up guns or, or swords. We actually fight with the word of God. We actually fight with the gospel of Jesus. Have a listen to 2 Corinthians 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So we do wage war, but not as the way the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There's a war going on. Ephesians 6 says we have a sword and what's the sword in Ephesians 6? It's the word of God, powerful, sharp. It's the good news of Jesus. And the battle is real, isn't it? It's not, a, it's not a nothing battle. It is a significant battle that we're, in, we're involved Increasingly, I don't know whether you've noticed this, as followers of Jesus, surely it, do you feel under more pressure not to speak about Jesus? Do you find it harder in the workplace to mention, just to mention you're Christian, just to mention that you've come to church and what you've learnt? There's actually a move across our culture, across our society to to, read, I think, redefine what it means to be secular. There's a move to say we're a secular country, and a secular country has no place, not only for, no, for religion, but for Christianity. And so Christianity doesn't have a voice at the public square. It's, it's not valid. It's, it's, it shouldn't be there. And it's the idea that, well, secular used to mean we have room for religion... We just don't want the state to impose a particular re- religion on anyone. So it's freedom of religion. Lots of religions, part of a multicultural Australia. We've moved from that idea to now freedom from religion, as if that's what it means to be a secular country. We've got to keep fighting for... No, no, to be a secular country is to freedom of religion, that we're all entitled to a free expression of religion. And so there's a whole host of reasons why we're getting squeezed a little bit to talk about Jesus. But if you're a follower of Jesus, can I just keep encouraging you not to stop speaking about Jesus? Uh, Incredibly important, isn't it? You think about what's going on, the battle, the big picture, eternity. People's eternal destiny hangs on us speaking about Jesus. That's an important war to be part of. So why did God command his people to completely remove the nations? It's about God bringing his justice. But let me give you the second point. It's about protecting God's people. Uh, It's about protecting God's people from the temptation and the uh, contamination of sin and idolatry. Have a look down in verse 3 of chapter 7. He says, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Verse 4, For they will... Turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. Well, look down in verse sixteen. You must destroy all the people the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity, and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. See, total destruction is actually to protect God's people. The removal of sin is actually to establish God's holy nation. A chosen nation, a people who will be one people worshipping one God in one place, the land that God promised to Abraham. came across this week this article in the Telegraph UK. It was uh, published a few years ago. And the headline uh, was, was this, Study disproves the Bible's suggestion that the ancient Canaanites were wiped out. The Bible got it wrong. Now, the article uh, went on to say that they've done DNA research to prove that the people of modern-day Lebanon uh, are descended from the Canaanites. And then the the article says that disproves what the Bible says about the Canaanites being wiped out, being destroyed. Uh, Now, that was in the UK in Telegraph. The ABC picked that up because the ABC likes to pick up these kind of articles, right? Uh, And they included... Something further, they included a quote from a DNA professor, a guy by the name of Alan Cooper, and he said this, "'Clearly the Bible's wrong in the sense of the Canaanites being smitten. They were clearly not smit too well.'" <laughs> now, do you pick up the problem with, that, with those quotes? What's the problem with that logic? Where's, they're just a little bit too eager to dismiss the Bible, Because if you keep going in the scriptures, you realise that the the Bible never suggests that the Canaanites were completely wiped out. Uh, God commanded the removal of the Canaanites from the land, but Israel actually failed to follow through on that. Um, Apparently someone raised this with um, the UK Telegraph, and they actually posted a correction. (laughs) They actually said... Uh, Here's what they said, the original version of this story erroneously said the Bible claimed the Canaanites were wiped. However, elsewhere in the Bible it says the elimination was not successful. So it's a little fine print at the bottom of the Bible, at the bottom of the newspaper. Um, Now, what did the ABC do? Apparently they amended the story, but with no apology or explanation. What actually happened when Israel did enter the land? Well, the thing is they didn't remove... Completely removed the other nations. They actually intermarried uh, with them. Worst of all, they were tempted to follow the other gods and they did serve other gods, the gods of the nations. It's actually exactly what God said would happen. Beware, be careful. What does, that, what does that mean for us today? Let's, let's have a think about that. What does it mean for us today? I reckon it says something really significant about sin, doesn't it? Sin is a really, really significant problem and God knows it. He, he warns us. What does sin do? It separates people from God. Uh, what is, what's the problem with the sin, the idolatry in the land? It's actually the very thing that will stop the flourishing good life of God's people. You can't have the good life, the promised land with all its blessings uh, with each other, with God, with the creation, if you're not going to do away with idolatry, not going to do away with sin. And here's the thing, isn't it not true that we're just as bad as Israel at eliminating sin? Israel couldn't do it. And I want to say to you at this point, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not the hero of the story. It's not you coming out saying, I'm going to defeat sin. Who's the hero? Jesus is the hero, isn't he? Who is the warrior who faithfully uh, combats sin, eliminates sin, does the very thing that Israel failed to do? Is Jesus. So what does Jesus do? He decisively, once and for all, at the cross, deals with sin. He wins the war at the cross that creates the holy nation. And because Jesus has done that, we are actually able to fight. We're actually able to do battle with our sin. We're actually able to take up arms against sin. Um, And God calls us to, doesn't he? To do it. To not be afraid. And, And you will be victorious because Jesus has already won the war. See, what happened at the cross? Satan, the ferocious lion, was defeated. What's now the picture of Satan's attack upon you? It's more like the yappy little dog that bites at your ankles. Kick him off. <laughs> Defeat him. It's uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Have a look at this on, on the screen. Be serious about sin. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's, it's a battle, isn't it? It is a battle against sin. We're called to put it to death. We're actually to completely annihilate, be aggressive with sin in our lives. We mustn't play loose with it. We mustn't tolerate it. We must bring it out into the earth. We must confess it. Ask God to forgive us. Know that Christ has dealt with it at the cross. Put it to death. So I wonder if that challenges you this morning. It, It must challenge all of us, mustn't it? Is there sin in your life? Yes, there is sin in your life. Is there stuff that you're not putting to death? Yes, there is, I'm sure. Today's a reminder to put it to death. Bring it to God seek his forgiveness, put it to death. And it's not just individually, it's actually corporately as well. The New Testament talks about us taking sin seriously as a church, as a community. Um, Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Here God's saying, don't stand in moral judgment against your community. God will deal with that. Um, God's calling you to take sin seriously, and God's calling us as, a, as his people to take sin seriously. We're all sinners. We all need forgiveness. Uh, but he actually wants us as a community to help each other deal with sin, to put it to death, to remove it from our eyes, from our lives. Um, not in a judgmental way, not in a way that is superior, but in a way that says, I'm saved by grace. God has been incredibly kind to me. I need to deal with sin. I need to to take the log out of my own eye before I take the speck out of yours. But we're going to help each other in love and grace and kindness to take sin seriously. That's the kind of church we're going to be. So summary, God's people enter the land. What does he want them, why is he calling them to to annihilate? It's to bring his justice, to protect against the contamination of sin. And lastly, God wants to keep his people humble. God wants to keep his people humble. Look at verse 7, chapter 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's, for you were the fewest of all people's. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We'll flick over to chapter 9, verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, do not do this, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land. And then third time, verse 6 of chapter 9, Understand then that it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Do you notice how God has to keep repeating this? It is not because of you. It is not because of you. It is not because of you. It's not because you're righteous. It's actually because he's judging the nations. And Moses is really good at picking up with Israel. Remember, you were the grumbling people. You were the disobedient people. You were the people who, who stray towards idolatry and immorality. You're the people who provoked God to anger. It was only actually because I interceded for you that we are where we are. It's only because of God's grace and kindness that we've been rescued. It's not because of your righteousness. Here's a great little phrase. uh, There but for the grace of God go I. Do you believe that? There but for the grace of God go I. That really encapsulates grace, doesn't it? You're in this situation. You've fallen in sin. You need to repent. But there by the grace of God, I would be there as well. There's no superiority. It captures... I think the attitude that Israel should have had as they experienced God's judgment coming on the Canaanites, not superiority, but humble before God. It's not, if it wasn't for the grace and mercy of God, we would be under judgment as well. And it's the same for us, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 2, and it's interesting, if you read through Ephesians 2, it it gets repeated again and again and again, because God knows what we're like. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's one mediator, Jesus Christ, the only one through whom we can escape the judgment. It is only by grace that you've even put your faith in him. And don't look down on other people. Don't look down on your culture. Rather, recognise the grace of God in your life and be incredibly thankful and share that grace with everyone who listen well let's let's wrap up um, big topic this morning holy war uh, a unique event as God's people conquer the nations that occupy the promised land um, they failed to annihilate they failed to destroy they failed to deal with sin who has succeeded Jesus has succeeded Our victory over sin is because of Jesus and his work at the cross and his resurrection. Uh, What are we to do now? Now we fight, not with swords or guns, but with the word of God, with the good news of Jesus, applied to ourselves, taught to others. And so you are part of a holy war. You are to take up arms. You are to take up the word of God, powerful in your life and the life of others. You march under the banner of Jesus Christ, you could say, in his army. What what are you doing? You're waiting patiently for that great judgment to come when evil will be completely annihilated, where perfect justice will come and evil will be destroyed. But now humbly stand by grace, thankful that you've been saved, you've been forgiven, and put to death sin. Obey his command to take up the sword, to completely annihilate sin in your life. Take up the word of God, share the good news of Jesus with others. Because we're actually living in this incredible time of grace and mercy, aren't we? This amnesty period where God says, Put your weapons down, to change the analogy, against me and come and be forgiven. Come and receive the grace, come and receive the mercy. Come and actually be part of my people. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you need you need to think about that this morning. Uh, maybe you need to come to God for the first time. I need to be forgiven. I want to be part of your people. Thank you for dying for me. Why don't we, why don't we pray together now as we uh, finish up and then we'll sing. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have taken the initiative to deal with sin once and for all in the cross of Jesus. Father, thank you for your righteousness, that you are the holy God, the judge of all, that you hate evil, you hate sin, and yet you are a God full of mercy and compassion. You're a God determined to have a people uh, that love you with all their heart. Father, thank you that you've achieved this in Christ, in his death and resurrection. Thank you that Jesus dealt once and for all with sin, that the judgment due us was brought upon him. Father, thank you that now we can live lives that please you as we wrestle with sin, as we battle with sin, as we put it to death. Father, thank you for the power of your word, your sword uh, in our own lives and the lives of others. Father, thank you for this period of grace and mercy uh, before the great judgment to come. Please help us to, to share this message of mercy and kindness in Christ before that last day. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.